This episode is brought to you by Patreon, specifically the Comic Pop Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash comic pop and find out more about how you can keep the lights on here at Comic Pop. And don't worry, we've got plenty of fun rewards, including early access to videos and weekly updates about what's happening here at the studio. That's patreon.com slash comic pop. All right, let's get on with the show now. Sweeping down upon the underworld to smash gangland comes the friend of the unfortunate, enemy of criminals. Mysterious, all-powerful character, a problem to the police, but a crusader for law. Hey everybody, welcome to Worlds Exchange, I'm Sal, and I'm joined today by Jim Zub. Jim, welcome to the show, man. Thank you, thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. It's been a, a long time coming. Uh, we were chatting before the, the recording started that uh, we've chatted at cons and sort of ships passing or whatever but we've never formalized it so it's nice to to make that happen it's true yeah and you were super like accommodating and sweet we were like i reached out to you you're like yeah man what's what's a good day for you and then you know almost like i had more time on my hands or something feels like like we all do yeah Yeah, (laughs) i'm i am reaping the whirlwind when it comes to that i'll tell you that oh interviews and yeah i think everyone's (laughs) suddenly really available and and looking for interaction and stuff it's good that's the thing man like with no conventions it's like there is no fan interaction with any creators and, and and vice versa and i think the people are just like hungry for it at this point i mean i hope you know yeah i you know it's um the the convention season stuff i really really deeply miss it because on the whole i'm usually quite extroverted and i love interacting with people and particularly those first few shows of the season they kind of remind you why you do this stuff and you reconnect with so many of your peers and you get to have at least a couple times per show in interaction with someone you've always wanted to or finally get that conversation you've been looking for yeah. and it's what happens on the show floor but so much of it is what happens after hours you know the kinds of some of the business conversation of course but a lot of it just kind of you know kibitzing and hanging out and and the the shared kind of connective tissue of excitement that we have for this stuff so yeah yeah. yeah no I, I i've gotten addicted to the con experience particularly the my staples you know like new york is obviously a huge yep. one for me we're it's right around the corner um mm-hmm. you know baltimore i and i don't know there was an east coast comic-con in new jersey that's like that we that i love to go to because like you'd be surprised who goes um, oh, and sometimes those those small to mid-sized shows are some of my favorites yeah. because you get the kind of interactivity that you want. You know, I love the big crazy, like I love New York and San Diego, and those are very fun experiences. But inevitably, no matter what you do, you don't get to see the people that you wanted to the way you wanted to. Right. And the, I always laugh at you'll see people at San Diego and it'll be, we should, we should get in touch. And you're like, that's why I'm here, you know, <laughs> but it's not yeah. going to happen because we're all getting pulled in a hundred different directions. Definitely. And every conversation at San Diego ends with, we'll follow up after the show. And you're like, we could have just called each other anyway. You know? <laughs> yeah. Did we even need to go? But, but it was fascinating to see you on the show floor in the scrum, getting pulled away by a crowd of people momentarily, you know, <laughs> It's it's just it's part and parcel of the thing, but those small to mid-sized shows are where you get that just hang out, you know, just hang at someone's table or go out for a beer or whatever may have you. And those kinds of interactions become really, really valuable. Yeah. And they build bonds that, you know, pay dividends and not not necessarily professional ones too, just really great people. You know, the number of wonderful friends I've made over the years and whether or not I ever work with them, it's that's kind of not the point, you know, exactly. it, it's more just people who know what you're going through and what you're doing and what you want to do, you know? Yeah. 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 
Now, uh, you've been spending the the quarantine kind of like obviously isolated like the rest of us, but uh, yeah. you you uh, you let just myself re- get scruffy. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, that's that, that's part of the fun. I <laughs> I shot a show and I was like, oh no, I had a like I had like half a beard. And I was like, right. I didn't even think <laughs> to shave, and I'm like, damn it. Sure. <laughs> I gotta at least put on a veneer of like that I clean myself. Respectability on a in yeah. some regard. Yeah. I've been teaching classes, uh, so I teach at a college called Seneca here in Toronto, and our last four weeks of classes were online, and I was, you know, gotta be super presentable, have to put on the strongest front and and professional and all that stuff. And now the term's done and I'm slipping into summer mode and just kind of easing into this thing. Yeah. So, you know, now what do you, yeah. what do you teach? What's your, uh, what's your vocation over at uh, Seneca? So my background before I started doing comics was animation. So, um, yeah, yeah. I did classical animation training, like Disney style kind of hand-drawn animation. I worked in TV animation for several years. Um, and so that was kind of my touchstone for a lot of the art and creative stuff and storytelling. And um, although I was a huge comic book fan, I didn't ever think I would work in this industry. Just it felt out of reach. I knew there were Canadian comic book creators. But to me, as a kid growing up through the 80s reading comics, it felt like those names were people who were far away or they were always in New York City or L.A. or they were brilliant and British. And I would never, you know, uh, be one of those people. And so comics was not necessarily my original plan. I looked at animation and the hundreds of names you'd see in the credits. And I'm like, I could be one of, I could be one of those. I could be <laughs> very small dreams, you know, yeah, like yeah, reasonable. Yeah. That's very, very. Yeah. You got to set yeah. your sights very low. Um, although, although I got to say like doing the animation and working in, uh, working in TV is not really that low, oh, yeah. it, but it still felt achievable. First yeah. of all, there, I knew there were studios in, throughout Canada that were doing animation. And second of all, um, uh, there were schools that were teaching this stuff. And so I uh, I got into that and worked and really enjoyed it. But as I was getting into the industry, the major kind of shift, it was already happening, but the huge turnover in terms of 2D to 3D yeah. was changing. So 3D animation was becoming a thing. So my timing, that uh, was pretty bad. Uh, the industry <laughs> was in a bad spot uh, for, for hand-drawn animation. I wasn't up on the 3D end of things. And so I had originally planned to go back to school for retraining in, in computer animation. And instead that summer, like basically I was back in Toronto. I jumped around the country on various job stuff. Um, I was back home here in, in Toronto and, um, I was going to go to school in the fall. So September of that year, it was like February or March. And, um, that summer I had nothing to do. I was just waiting for this course to start up. And a friend of mine who I'd gone to school with and worked with in animation a little bit, he was working at the Udon studio and uh, they're, they're based just north of Toronto. He was doing comic book stuff at the time. I think he was coloring on agent X that they were doing. Okay. You know, Simone was writing it. It was that sort of weird, not quite Deadpool book that they were doing. Yes. But Udon was coloring a bunch of stuff at Marvel and they were illustrating a couple different titles. They were doing a lot of licensing work. And so I got in with them for what was supposed to be a summer job. And instead, I didn't go back to school. And within like six, to eight months, I was helping project manage and art direct at the Udon studio. I was doing illustration and coloring and starting to go to conventions hardcore. And so I had been to a few conventions previously. I'd done some webcomic stuff and met some people in that space. But uh, that was really where I got my 
inadvertently like my training in in how the industry works yeah. on a networking level and a publishing level and all that kind of stuff. It, and it, so it's amazing yeah. to see where uh, we start and then where we end up. First, like what what our absolute dreams were. If you were like, hey, eight years ago, what were your dreams? And it's like, right, right. You're achieving your abs your, your truest dreams here now, but like back then, you'd be like, that's completely different from what I was planning on doing. And that's good. Like I try and explain this to my yeah. students all the time that you need to have creative plans and dreams and aspirations. And those are absolutely important, not because you're going to get that exact thing, but because they give you the drive to do things, to right. create stuff. But what you need to be open to and willing to understand is that opportunities are going to come your way and to take advantage of those and to evolve your your dreams as you go, yeah. because those are going to open up other pathways to you. And and so it's a weird thing to say, have a dream, but know the dream will change. Yeah. Not because I don't want you to have it, but because that's part and parcel of, of kind of creative momentum yeah. that you need to have as you work. You it's, know? It's, it's giving voice to a thing that you kind of like subconsciously learn as you go, where it's like, yeah, it's literally yeah. like, you know, things are going to change, but like, still have that dream in your in your in your right. mind because yeah you're like you're right it's 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 about having the drive and pushing yourself to achieve it and it's like you'd be surprised how many times the road bows or turns and then you end up someplace else and end up inadvertently achieving in great places yeah thing. yeah yeah and then for, so for me, you know, one of the things I didn't realize when I was younger was that I loved art and animation and I loved comic books and I love, you know, all this stuff. Yeah. But it was always the, the aspect of it that was most enjoyable, that was most engaging, that I could easily pour myself into was the story. Yeah. So I didn't think of myself as a writer originally, uh, but all these other tools, all these other outlets were story driven. Right. And those were the parts that I wanted to do. And when I started working in the comic book space, when I started doing stuff with Udon, every time there was a story kind of element to what we were doing, if it wasn't just an art job that we were being given by a client, I could do that and I could be involved and help organize it. But what I really loved was the story part. And yeah. so the more art stuff I did, the more I was like, man, I'm really missing this key component. My, my enthusiasm is sort of waxing and waning depending on what we're doing. Right. But if there was a story, I was doubtless you know i could always kind of dig in and and that would lead me to you know the kind of training that i got at udon about publishing about scheduling project management budgets really boring stuff that people don't think is you know who can, it, it's like you talk to artists and you say don't forget to pay your taxes and they're like snooze uh, but, yeah. <laughs> but knowing that stuff is really important you know oh, and so the project management stuff in particular I was able to see what worked, what didn't, how to motivate people, how to organize budgets, how to build a project and carry it through to completion. So when I started doing my own creator own book um, in to like 2009 and then launching it in 2010, um, I had all that knowledge that I could bring to bear on my own stuff. Yeah. And that was so crucial. And that was stuff that I would have had to learn the hard way, you know, if I had gone through, I guess, sort of the traditional route with it. Oh, yeah. And so it meant that I could deliver a professional product on time. It meant that I was giving publishers and clients the kind of stuff that I would have wanted, you know, if I was managing a project. Yeah. And that's helped me a lot in my writing now, too, that when I'm working for Marvel or Dark Horse or DC or anybody, I've been an editor, I've been a project manager and an art director. 
I know what you want to see because that would make my life easier. You know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, we, um, it's funny. The, whenever you try to break into comics and you know, this is, I'm just really talking to them, but like I'm saying, like, when, when you're trying to break into comics, uh, it's funny whenever anybody says like, I want to get into, I want to get into comics. I want to do this. One of the things that I remember being told when I tried to break into the comic industry at one point or another, they were like, you gotta make your own book. You gotta have your mm-hmm. own book and then kind of like sell it that way. Kind of like mm-hmm. get in through that uh, direction. And what I've learned from that is that it's like a very quick way to say you need to know how the industry works on every conceivable level so that you can produce the thing that we want you to produce the way that we know how it's done. Right. It's a proof of concept. You're exactly. literally saying, this is what I can do for you. You know what I mean? And yeah. and in some cases, I think people don't realize how powerful a tool that is because so many people say they're going to make stuff yeah. and they don't make stuff. You know, if you want to be an artist, you need a portfolio and the portfolio you're showing a client says, I can produce this quality of work for you. And they're going to try and draw the, strong, the, the straightest line between two points. Yes. So if you give them a bunch of crazy horror creepy stuff they're gonna go man we got this horror property we want you to do a a piece for if you don't show them sequential pages they won't think of you as a sequential artist if you don't show them cover work they're not going to think of you as a cover artist genre whatever it might be right the reason why i launched skull kickers in 2010 and almost immediately you know there's a good response to the series i start getting thought of and getting approached about fantasy stuff is because it's a slam bam you know sword and sorcery book and and that's great that's something that i love and i think that this is one of those things that people it sounds obvious when you say it but people who haven't gone through the stuff don't know any better they are trying to create a book that they think a client wants and they're like, is it something you're going to be passionate about and showcase what your strengths are? Do you yeah. know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Whether that's your art or your writing or whatever, yeah. because they're going to typecast you in that way for better or for worse. You see it with actors, you see it with musicians all the time. People, you are setting an expectation with how you present yourself and what you present, you know? Oh, yeah. And so if your portfolio is a bunch of half finished pieces, no one's going to believe you can finish anything. Right. If you're, if you're, you know, storytelling is strong or if it's of a particular kind of genre or style, that's what people are going to want to see from you. Absolutely. And one of the most potent things you can do is to keep, even as you start getting professional work, keep bolstering and, and expanding out that view of what you're capable of. So even when I did this action comedy thing with Skull Kickers and I got some fantasy work and I was super happy to do it, I realized that I'd also typecast myself very much in that corner when i did wayward that sort of said oh he can do he still loves doing action but he can do drama and he can do kind of teenagers and 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 the kind of character ensemble stuff you know that would help serve me really well and bridge me to do superhero work you know exactly yeah yeah and as a writer you know it's funny because you you're selling yourself as a writer uh and when you go into the industry you're like i want to write you throw a rock, you're going to hit somebody who's like, I got a story for you. I know how to write sure. it. Like, but you need to be able to prove that you can edit, work with other mm-hmm. artists, uh, you know, have like, have quality control, uh, have Your collaborative yeah, you... abilities and your communication is absolutely crucial. Exactly. You know what I mean? And your flexibility. Yeah. You, yeah. you can, I'm sure that like any publisher has like a thousand writers in their, oh, yeah. whatever the equivalent of a Rolodex is today. Uh, yeah. But, you know, you need to set yourself apart by proving that you can produce 
produce on time, work with an artist, work with multiple artists. You know, like mm -hmm. you need to just be able to prove you can walk the walk as opposed to like, absolutely. You can write a story. And, and, and every, even within, you know, a company, a publisher, different editors have different ways that they enjoy working and different people they like working with. Yeah. And your ability to understand as quickly as possible what they want and why and, and, and fit that mold, but also still be yourself. Like, you know, they are hiring you to do what you do well, hopefully. And, yeah. and you've got to bring your ideas to the fore, but be willing to, you know, collaborate and compromise. And, and that balancing act, it's like a weird thing where you build up kind of creative credit and then you spend it, you know what I mean? So, right. um, there are projects and stories that I pitch now to editors that I wouldn't never have pitched when I started with them, but they trust me now and we've built up relationships and they, you know, yeah. if I tell you I can pull something off, I'm not just some random schmo who says that. And you're like, well, can you, you're <laughs> like, well, I've done this for you for years. Let's, let's go wild. Let's yeah. do something different and get that, you know, uh, confidence in, in, in the working relationships that you have, yeah. you know, well, and maybe earlier you couldn't have even done yeah. it then. You know, you needed oh, to be absolutely. able to put in the work to get to that point where you could pitch a book that you're not necessarily like typecast in. Right. Or or just be really um, clear about, you know, what's working for you or what's not. Yeah. And, and realize that that's not going to deep six the working relationships just because <laughs> you've done so much already together. It's exactly. about trust. It's about collaboration. You know, every time I'm working on a, a work for hire thing as early as possible, I want to know who the artist is because I don't want to write a generic script that, you know, to, first of all, those tend to be way more descriptive because I'm trying to fill in my imagination of what it could look like. Yeah. But, but if I know who's specifically doing it, I can reach out to them. We can get on a call and I can get a sense of what they're most excited about, about this project or these characters. Um, I do a lot of team books. And so it's like, which of the cast are you most pumped to draw? I will lean into that. I don't want this to be a generic thing and I'm trying to find an art robot to to draw <laughs> this, you know, vanilla, whatever. Yeah. I want this to play to your strengths. I want this to be as strong as possible so that we're both really proud of what we're doing and that what comes out the other end is something that speaks well of both of us, you know, yeah. our, what we're capable of. Yeah. yeah. I, I love your connection to all these different facets of the, like, comic culture world landscape i guess because it's like hey. not just comics also animation also web comics right. um role-playing games role-playing games yeah, uh, yeah. you know and, it, and it's interesting how you know it starts in animation it goes into web comics it goes into comics and then you worked on these the, nerdy tendrils all oh over yeah the, but oh, how yeah. it kind of almost goes full circle where it goes into the like the rick and morty dungeons and dragons book where mm -hmm. it, it mm -hmm. kind of comes back into animation and into cartoon properties and how like and all of it feeds on itself like you know the yeah. big uh, i was a big manga and anime fan in the early 90s um before kind of it, like we're talking pre ghost in the shell kind of stuff when it was called Japan um, animation yeah that's right and you'd get you know they have one or two tapes at the store and a lot of this was fan subtitled stuff that was being sent through mailing clubs um through, and university sci-fi clubs and stuff like that yeah. And then to go to Japan uh, multiple times, thanks to the work I was doing with Udon, to build up a relationship with someone like Stephen Cummings. And then we do Wayward together, you know, years later. 
like the, all these things come around in wheels, you know, growing up playing Dungeons and Dragons and then eventually doing the official Dungeons and Dragons comic. Like right. it's been such a nostalgic whirlpool for me of cool stuff. Um, playing Street Fighter 2 in the arcade with my friends or at the local fish and chips shop, you know, uh, lunch break in, in high school and then working on Street Fighter stuff like yeah. that. It's unreal to me. Like it's surreal. And right. it, growing up reading Conan the Barbarian and, and working on Conan now. Like it's very my career feels like this strange Peter Pan kind of childish, wonderful thing. And I try so hard not to. I never want to take that for granted. Right. Like I always wanna hold that close. Yeah. And and yet you also not be so precious that you're unprofessional or um incapable of of stretching yourself beyond those bounds you know right absolutely yeah. or being so covetous of the material that you're like well right. i got to make sure that nothing bad happens to conan yeah you know? <laughs> yeah you know that was something really early on when i first started doing marvel uh, monthly stuff with yeah. thunderbolts um the first few months i was super paranoid about continuity i was like a freak like i needed everything to work yeah. and i still am i really love that aspect of the marvel universe too, and, and yeah. shared universes in general but I was terrified of not, I didn't want to make anything. I needed everything to be existing oh. ingredients because that made it real Marvel. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, and and there was a point, I don't remember how many months in I was, and I was talking to Tom Brevoort, my editor, and I we had a story problem. And he was like, well, just make a thing that does what you want it to do. <laughs> and I was like, can I do that? And he goes, how do you think they made the Marvel Universe? Like, <laughs> what a fair thing to say. That's kind amazing. of the point, right? Yeah. And I was like, Okay, I guess I'll do a thing. And we made a little thing. And the day the issue came out, those guys that run the Marvel Wiki added it. And I was like, oh, crap. Oh, I no. Just, I'm addicted to this now. Yeah. <laughs> I got to make stuff. Like, yeah. we got to, you know, now I want to put bricks in the wall of the of the House of Ideas. Like, right. I want to be, you know, a part of that creative aspect of it, yeah. you know. Oh yeah, yeah, well, and, yeah. And, and it's funny yeah. because like you can imagine. I I remember a time when you've re you've written Marvel comics and like everything was just the pre-existing material, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that's how you get kind of like unmemorable runs where it's just kind of yeah. like it all flows yeah. together. It's just like the status quo is maintained. It's, Absolutely, it's when they decided to go off the beaten path and make something that you either get well, and you get some of the best and maybe some of the most 90s, you know, where it's Absolutely. like well, shoulder this pads and, and skateboards. Like, <laughs> but, but, you know, for me, when I was going back and I've been rereading a lot of my favorite runs of these books and using looking at them through a different lens, right. obviously, like as a writer and a creator now trying to figure out what that primordial element was like why were these so great to me and some of them don't hold up to scrutiny as well but a lot of them do yeah but for different reasons you know at the time i would just think something was cool right but now i can look and go man that was really smart that was really good yes. and 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 why it grabbed my attention and continued to grab my attention and a big part of it was that you felt like characters were moving forward and doing exciting and and unexpected things that I needed to see what happened next. Yeah. And part of the problem with having characters now with the detrius of 60, 70, 80 years worth of history is the fear of, you know, that they are locked into a certain vision and they can't go places. And watching writers, people I really respect in this business, take those risks. And sometimes even if they fail, man, I have a lot of respect for 
for pushing and trying because particularly the characters that have built up so much material yeah. what have can you do that you've never done before what can you do that's going to shock and surprise and amaze in a way that we did you know like we 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 saw as readers when yeah. we were young well and yeah. and i think maybe some of those times when it doesn't work or it isn't as successful it for me it's almost like they didn't go far enough like maybe they right, should have right. really pushed it like or maybe they should yeah. have not been afraid of how long it was cuz the thing is you know i i and i i can imagine being on the other side of it, being the person who has an entire show dedicated to like laughing at things that creators oh, do sure. in their books, um, I I think that the 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 concern is the overwhelming loudness of a vocal minority, yep. where it's yep. like I, I imagine that the letters pages of those <laughs> books were right. inundated, like they only printed the good stuff and maybe one. Bad Every so thing often they print a negative one, right, that but was just like to really, highlight, yeah. like there is dissension. It's not all yeah, just yeah. sunshine and rainbows, but you know there was like an entire bag of shit. Oh, totally. And they were. This like, is what's so different about the internet aspect of yeah. it is that you can build up this whirlpool, and that's not to say that the negative feedback is unfounded or right. that there's no place for it. There absolutely is, and people. Creators make huge mistakes, but but I think a greater risk in many cases is holding the line and keeping it boring and, and same. same as it ever was, yeah. or doing the nostalgic, hey, remember that storyline you really liked? It's that again. And you're right. just like, man, what a what a boring kind of turn. Well, way to seen remind this me of that. Like that yeah, yeah. You, know, you just held yourself man, you're up riding to the, it. You're riding the coattails of really creaky stuff. Like <laughs> what can you do to really, you know blow this out and, and make it feel cool. And when yeah. I read those seminal runs, a big one, obviously, Uncanny X-Men, you know, Chris Claremont. Yeah. When you look at, if you, the soap opera's bonkers, of course. Right. It's meant to be read on a month-to-month -month basis. So when you read it in rapid fire or in collection, it's crazy because it, it has stops. a lot of the, <laughs> right, the characters, they also have to say their powers and their names every month yes. because it was supposed to be 30 days between issues. So, you know, Wolverine's going to tell you he's got unbreakable bones and the claws come out and he's the best he is at what he does and what he does isn't very pretty. And when you read it, it's like they're all crazy people because they're constantly <laughs> telling you that every 20 pages. And you're yeah. like, we know, yeah. we know Hank McCoy does this. We know Aurora, you know, yeah. Monroe. But on a month to month basis, it was just a quick check in. Remember, remember, or if it was your very first issue, that was how you you you're understood. Yeah. And and. You know, um, you're good to go. That that it doesn't matter that you've jumped in at issue whatever, and, and so the barring the limitations of the format, you have to sort of sweep that aside and go. This page is exposition because they can't assume you were here last month and right. you forgot who Logan is or whatever. Right. Um, barring that, the actual storytelling and the payoffs and the evolution of the characters, as winding and crazy as it was, was thoroughly enjoyable, yeah. was almost always engaging, was surprising, you know? And that means something. It meant a lot. There was a reason why X-Men shot up and became the number one book in the business, yeah. because we loved those characters. We loved their relationships and their interactions. And Chris Claremont's strengths and weaknesses on full display in terms of what he did very well with those characters and occasionally his um, proclivities in terms of obsessive qualities on certain characters or elements. Mm -hmm. All that aside, I can laugh at that stuff, but be absolutely 
engage still you Absolutely. know you recognize the inherent value and yeah, can yeah. still unabashedly love it and that's the thing about Absolutely. like about recounting a story versus reading it and being part of it like you, you're yeah, in it yeah. you're like i love this and then you try to explain right. it to somebody and they're like that sounds completely ridiculous and you're like i mean it is yeah i mean sure. i know that if you're following the history of any one character and that strange oh. who they're in love with and their evolution of their powers and yeah the, the vocal ticks and all that, whatever, all that stuff. Right. Just, the, but it's awesome. Yeah. And it the, is awesome. This 28 year old man who's been around for 80 years. Like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be you weird. Know, it's going to be weird. And, and so for me, when I was working on a, a book like, you know, Uncanny Avengers or Champions um, yeah. or, or Thunderbolts or whatever, I wanted it to feel like it had that quality to it, not the quality of, I'm going to endlessly tell you their powers every month or whatever. But, yeah. but that quality of, Oh man, something crazy happened to so-and-so. I don't know how we're going to go back from that or yeah. let's see what happens. Push these characters until they break. And some of the readers really responded and said, it felt like, you know, some of their favorite old comics. And I think some new readers were, were put off because they were like, why are you being so mean to these characters? Like, yeah. why are you being cruel and i was like man claremont was cruel right. like you know john byrne was cruel like like and nascenti was cruel to daredevil like oh. let's let's go get, let's dig in yeah. you know like well, i want to prove that these characters are worthy of this stuff yeah. in the earlier days like they'd kill them going like they're not coming back like yeah. now you're kind of yeah. like i could probably hurt them so yeah. bad but they'll be back you know like i know right, that in, right. the, in the back of your mind like they're protected. Like they're going to be okay. Right. They're not real. So we can come up with, sure, uh, sure. we can come up with an ultimate re like resuscitator. Or we can have their soul go into the body of somebody else. Like mm -hmm. we can fix it. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, people are very precious about the characters that they love and that they've invested in. And that's a great thing. Like that passion that's right. drives the whole industry. Exactly. Right. And, and so on the one hand, I never want to act like that's not important or that no. it doesn't matter. But on the other hand, there's a part of you when you're working on this stuff and people are responding, you know, a lot of positive, but the dissenting, you know, anger sometimes. And you're like, like, keep reading, yeah, like, like hang please. in there. And that's the thing is that I'm I'm concerned that like the advent of the Internet and the, and the constant stream, like the constant ongoing online conversation that literally mm -hmm. has no stop. Like with a letter, right. it ends and then you just right, wait right. for the next one. With this, it's like the Twitter conversation, the forums, like the Reddit posts, like it all just keeps going. And so it's like you don't have you don't even have time to get to the climax before people are not only guessing where you're going to go with it. And it's like, sure. yeah, maybe, you know, if I have a thousand people all guessing how it's going to end, someone's going to be right. Of course. And, and they're going to be like, oh, it's all so obvious. Right. And, and it's like, like, wow. Yeah. Well, maybe because you were basing your opinion off of the opinions of 800 other people who all were, sure. trying, we're all throwing some of that at the wall, but like, maybe you're right. And maybe it's true that was going there, but maybe in this context of the story itself, it was going to be satisfying anyway. Right. Or if you sit back and you read the whole thing in collection, you Makes start to see a much stronger kind of build exactly. because you're no longer, but, and yet the month to month is kind of exciting in its own way. Yeah, like definitely. there's so many different elements to it that you, you're, you're trying to balance out, you know, and people talk about writing for the trade and other people talk about, you know, so issue to issue is this satisfying, does this function? Yeah. And it's a very different kind of industry than it was, you know, in the, in the days when I was reading originally yeah. and you're trying to balance those factors out. And so I, like a lot of writers, I think I overthink this stuff a lot of times in a good way. Mm -hmm. This is my job. This is my vocation. I want to do it to the best of my ability. 
so you're constantly tinkering and trying different engines and, and pushing and pulling. So like Black Panther and the Agents of Wakanda is built on a model of two issue stories and there's a cliffhanger in the middle. Uh, they're quick in a way that so many comics aren't now. Yes. And that was by design. And so that means in two issues, if you don't like this mission, there's a new one. And, but yeah. if you did, hopefully you'll like the next one. And some of our readers really love that because they don't know what every two issues we're getting this new kind of refresh. And it's yeah. got this Mission Impossible kind of feel. Other people hate it because they're just like, we're not getting enough meat on the bone. And I'm like, okay, but this is something different. We're trying something different. And yeah. that's that's part and parcel. What I don't want to do is try and pull out six issues of the same story just because I can. Yeah. You know, that that let's kick this and try this format. And that doesn't mean every comic has to go that way. But God forbid every comic is six issues, no matter what, you know, whether yeah. or not it deserves it. Right. So. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, certainly the industry has noticed like the the writing for the trade format mm -hmm. where it's like, mm -hmm. you know, you know, something I and I've, I've had this experience where you're reading a story and you're like, here's the logical closure point. And you're right. only about two or three issues in, and you're like, "Yeah, yeah." Well, something has to interrupt this to get it to to push it to two or three issues. Is that how how right. how real is that? And and I feel like we're kind of getting away oh. from it because I've noticed that a lot of like the Marvel trades, at least, are a lot shorter. Like they kind of yep. fluctuate between like yep. length, yeah, which so is good, you know. And and some of those elements of decompressed storytelling mm -hmm. that were really innovative when they first started they start to feel tired if they're overused. Yeah, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, but on the other hand, it's like I talked to to Max Dunbar about this and we're working on a book on comicsology called Stone Star. And it's a creator-owned book, so we absolute control over it. Right. And I'm like, I want a quiet moment here. I want a big, full-page, no-text breath, yeah. you know? And I don't see that in as many comics anymore. And it's like, okay. I want to do that because it's something different and yeah. pacing wise, it says something different. And not, that doesn't mean every book, you, you can't fit them all in no. the same format, you no. know, and you shouldn't, you know? So, no, yeah. And you know that artists love that because they're like, Oh, I get a chance to really like get into this and do something. else. Yeah. Like, yeah. And I'll do that too. In my scripts, like your script is not just directions. It's, it's a conversation that you're having with the art team. Right. And so what you're sometimes I'll say, look, this is a really dense dialogue section this is for me and it sets up a bunch of stuff. I'm sorry about, you know, eight panels of talking heads, but I swear there's a big moment coming or, you know, or, or here's a crazy dense page with an army smashing into another army. Later on, they're going to be in a white room. I promise. Like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. you know, you know, uh, uh, commensurately over this script, it's going to be the same amount of work. Yeah. I will save you and I will, you know, in, in some other spot. I promise. Definitely. You know? Yeah, the, the, the comic book script is actually kind of like this nebulous, kind of like unknowable thing because, uh, mm -hmm. and especially for readers, uh, and I know that it took me a long time because as a kid, I, I used to read movie scripts. And, right. uh, and I learned how to write scripts from like this crappy website called Drew's Scriptorama, where like every hey, whatever worked was available. And I was like, oh, that's what that means, or that's how that works. And so I'd write my own scripts based on that format. Mm -hmm. um, when I decided it was time to start writing comic book scripts, there's really no template out there. There's no like good no. like resource. And I've noticed if you look at like a Bendis script versus a Zub script versus like a like a right yeah you know, anybody's script, they're all different format. Like there is no cohesion and, and my question is how do what's your script look like and so i had a, a pretty loose script format that i was using for years and then um 
Ron Mars uh, browbeat me uh, and said, hey, I'm using this format, which is the same format that I think I think Fred Van Lenty um, might have uh, and Greg Pak might have been using it when they were doing like like Hercules and stuff. Yeah. And they they really built this amazing template that is dense but organized. It's really easy on the eyes, but covers a lot that you can almost always get a page per page. So if it's a 20 page comic, it's a 20 page script. I rarely run over in that way. Uh, I really like it. Um, and so I took on that format and and uh, I'm a champion for that now because it works really, really well. So on my website, I've actually got tutorials about writing and stuff. And the reason why is exactly what you just talked about. When I started writing comics, there just didn't feel like there were any resources. Yeah. And so for me, it was like, as I was learning stuff, I would write it down because I'm a teacher and because this is the way I actually, it helps me to learn. I will organize information and go, does this make sense to me? If it makes sense to me, hopefully it makes sense to someone else. Yeah. And you're codifying things that you're sometimes unconsciously doing. Why do I do it that way? Why do I write this? Why do I say this? You know, and sometimes you're also checking yourself. So something like um, when I do a panel description, particularly when you have a bunch of characters doing things, I want to make sure that I'm describing the characters in reading order for the artist. Right. So they're imagining it in reading order and then in, they're speaking in reading order. And if I realize the dialogue needs to change, I will go back into the description and reorder the descriptions of what each character is doing, because I want the vision that the artist has as they read it to match the reading order that I need on the page. Right. And that's something no one ever told me to do. It was just I would get sketches back and I would realize whatever I had written, the artist is imagining it and sketching it out in order. Yeah. And that's what I would get. And I'd be like, no, that person's supposed to be on the left hand side. And then I'm like, why did they do it wrong? No, I did it wrong. Right. I told them wrong. Like yeah. they're just doing the best that they can with what I've given them, you know? Yeah. And the catch 22 is of course, by the time you're writing a comic book script for an artist at a publisher, right. you're kind of expected to know how to do that. Already. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not like Tom's and, gonna and call you and be like, for... you're doing it wrong. Let me fill you, let me fill you right. in. Like, <laughs> and you feel so stupid. The first time an editor calls you on a really obvious formatting thing or a, Hey, you, you told the artist to do like the character doing five different things in one panel. That's like <laughs> not possible. And right. you're like, Oh, or the classic joke is, you know, the character's back is turned and they're smiling. You're like, what? <laughs> like in a movie, I know what you're trying to say, but that's either two separate panels or it's a, some booming. It's a cheat, yeah. Yeah, you can't do that. You know, and just just things like that, that, that you need to have a visual component to what you're doing. A lot of times as well, art, or writers will describe an expression or a thing that can't easily be visually shown. Yeah. And instead of saying... The classic writer mistake I'll see is people say, oh, they're um, they're really annoyed. And it's like an artist can figure out what that shorthand is, but it's even more useful to say what they're doing in terms of body language. Yes. You know what I mean? Like they're face palming or they're, you know, got their hand on their hip or something like that. Just give them some piece to work with. Yeah. Some visual bit of storytelling instead of just saying, I, I see this in pitches all the time, too. Someone will say, oh, this story is going to be scary. You're like, dude, if you have to tell me then it's not like if you can use descriptors that immediately make me think, Ooh, this is scary. Yeah. Then you've achieved what you wanted without having to push the button. You know what I mean? Right. So, now, yeah, yeah. Apropos of your writing and your, uh, the process and the scripting and things <laughs> like that with books like no surrender and no road home, you right. with a slew of other 
talented mm-hmm. writers. Yeah, I've done a lot of co-writing over it's the true, years. It's true, yeah. Uh, yeah, um, but I'm curious as to how it all kind of like coalesced because one of those things that you notice is if, if, I've seen other anthology books or other stories mm. that involve a number of other writers working together where you can feel each Someone writer's grabbing the wheel and just right it. or at the very oh, least yeah. being like this writer wrote this character yeah yeah <laughs> and you can feel so, it this was very free flowing and you and with with writers with distinct styles Wade Ewing you yeah you, you can feel like you know what what you each of you is capable of and yet it felt like mm-hmm. one story written by one voice yeah um, thank you we're super proud of that and it was something that um we didn't know how well we were all going to work together. And I'm so thankful that that came through. It was a really, really unique uh, ser- you know, project and then became two projects, really. Right. Um, so the long-term plan, you know, uh, the, the Avengers Infinity War was coming out and obviously there was going to be a lot of extra heat around the Avengers as a whole. Yeah. They wanted to relaunch the book with Jason Aaron and Ed McGinnis on the series. But th- at that point, there were three different Avengers series. There was Avengers, there was U.S. Avengers, and Uncanny Avengers. And I r- honestly lucked into this whole thing. So to be 100% honest with you, I, I felt like the low man on the totem pole at, st- at the start because I was so nervous. I had just done Thunderbolts. Um, I knew that was coming to an end. And Tom, uh, Tom Brevoort had reached out to me and said he wanted me to relaunch Uncanny Avengers. Jerry Dugan was doing Uncanny Avengers. Jerry was going to be taking over Guardians of the Galaxy and all a bunch of cosmic stuff. Um, And so he asked if I wanted to relaunch Uncanny Avengers. I said, oh, my God, that'd be amazing. We were just starting to talk about potential team lineup, who carries over from Jerry's run and how that's going to work. And then they got a bunch of plans changed and they were like, actually, we're going to be folding all the Avengers books into one uh, book. Yeah. Jerry's really crazy busy. There was a bunch of um, like a sickness in the family and stuff like that. He wasn't able to do Guardians and Uncanny. They're like, I can give you Uncanny, but you're literally going to get like five issues to sunset the series. And I'm like, that's cool. I'll do the the Secret Empire issues and then sort of wrap it all up. And that was originally supposed to be my my assignment. So I just started planning out how that was going to work. And then Tom, God, less than a week later, I think he contacts me and he goes, okay, we want to make the end of those three series an event. And I was like, cool. And he goes, would you be willing to work with Mark and Al? And I was like, yeah, that would be phenomenal. Um, that'd be a lot of fun. You know, what does it entail? And he goes, we don't know yet. <laughs> and and it, the emails start flowing and we're starting to figure stuff out. And they decide it's going to be a weekly we're going to have somewhere between 12 and, and 18 issues. And, but, but a weekly, like there's going to be a ton of work. Uh, and then they decide we're going to fly in and, and all meet in person and do a summit uh, just for this event. That's awesome. And so I'm thinking, man, I, Uncanny Avengers isn't even my book. Right. <laughs> I am the least experienced writer on this crew. It's going to be Tom Brevoort. Uh, uh, you know, Al Ewing, Mark Wade, and I sitting in a room, uh, potentially Axel Alonzo popping in and out, and we're supposed to, I got to hold my own. Uh, how's this going to work? This is going to be, I was terrified. I was so excited and terrified at the same time. And I go to this writing summit, and we just start building the thing. We figure out, the good thing was we knew the cast of characters because we all had our own teams. Right. So that was good. But but what the threat was going to be, who the villains were going to be, how it was all going to pay off. We even were less worried about 
what toys we left for for um you know for jason it was more about making sure our books felt like they got what they deserved you know to take us to the finish line yeah and it was it was amazing we had the recipe cards out with the sharpies and we were planning stuff and moving scenes around and moving characters around and not a lot of arguing, a lot of joking, you know, nervousness at first and not being very risky with the story and then pushing and pushing and pushing, you know, yeah. and that day was about like building camaraderie and about feeling confident that we had a structure. And it, one of the things that was really happy for about it for me was we would be stuck on certain story elements or we would be. And, and I don't want to say arguing, more just like questioning each other, sort of, why are we doing this? What's going on? Yeah. And I, we'd get hung up on things and then solve them in the room, which was really fun. Yeah. That, For example, I got all hung up on, as I tend to, on continuity sticklery stuff. I was like, great, so the Avengers are going to... We'd figured out the world was going to be at stake, had literally been stolen. Yep. We knew the the elders of the universe were going to be involved, and and the Grandmaster became the core of it. But I was really hung up. Actually, no, sorry, the Grandmaster hadn't been figured out yet. This this, this ended up pouring into it because I said, if the whole world's at stake or been stolen or whatever, what are the X-Men doing? What are the Guardians of the Galaxy doing? Yeah. What What is everyone else doing? And and Tom and uh, even Mark, they were hand-waving it and they were like, dude, it's an Avengers book. Yeah. Like, we'll show them in Cutaway or whatever. Uh-huh. And I was like, that's ah, a pretty big threat. Like, seems <laughs> kind of not cool about that. Yeah. I said, you know, what, like, what are they, are they all frozen or something? <laughs> and literally we're like, you know, they sort of go, yeah, but why would they be frozen? And I go, well, because, you know, it, it, they need to be frozen because we've got a story to build around the Avengers. And he goes, okay, that's a really hokey thing. And I go, they, I forget who said it. It might've been Al goes, well, it's on purpose. And I go, yeah, they're being chosen to not be frozen. It's not about who's frozen. It's who's not frozen. Yeah. And it's because the Avengers need to be unfrozen. And I don't remember who at the table said the Grandmaster. And I go, right, it's a game. There are rules, but we don't know what the rules are, and we're going to unfold them as we go. See, that's amazing because that makes perfect narrative sense, and I love how organically it was weaved in. But then, of course, you're like, Thor Ragnarok came out, and Grandmaster's Jeff Goldblum. Obviously, we're going to talk about using the Grandmaster, get some high-profile action on that character. Right. But like, that seems like it just—it was just a happy. We totally did not intend that that it was because Jeff Goldblum was in it. One of my favorite bits, though, in that room, and I love this so much. Um, we were talking about who could be the player. So this decision that that normally the Avengers are playing a role against the Grandmaster's pieces, and we wanted to mix it up. So this idea that the Avengers were not actually one of the teams in competition, they were the spoilers between the two teams. And I, there was something different. So who are the two teams? And so we're jamming a bunch of stuff. And uh, I, because I was on this trip of let's make things, I was like, we should make a bunch of new villains. And we did, which was a ton of fun. Um, Tom was obsessed with the the name, the Lethal Legion. He's like, they've never gotten a good there's never been a strong version of them that's stuck. Let's right. see if we can make it stick here. So we made a bunch of new villains. Um, and then on the other side, we're trying to figure out cosmic, what it would be an alien race or something like that. And I think Al said, you know, the black order would be really cool. And Tom had been, you know, he would give his opinion, but he was pretty reserved. He was always holding back and listening and then throwing a little bit. That was the first thing the entire morning where he looked and he goes, yes, because he knew that they were going to be in the movie, but we didn't. I mean, we're planning this over a year, you know, before it comes out. Sure. And so he says, yes. And he puts that 
recipe card right in the middle of the table and he taps it and he goes black order and he can't tell us that they're going to be in the infinity war movie sure sure and then three hours later we're plugging away and we're like man we don't need the black order (laughs) and 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 mark starts sliding it off the middle of the table and tom grabs it puts back goes they're in (laughs) and we were like, like this is the first thing that tom has said that has no like there's no discussion right this is shut down there in the damn book. And yeah. we're all looking at each other like, that's weird. And Mark Wade just looks and goes, they're in the damn movie, aren't they? <laughs> and Tom goes, if they were, do you think I could tell you? Right. And then we all just stopped and we're like, black order. Put the card cool. back. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that was a really fun moment. And, and, you know, so, and again, organically, like we put them in the story on our own. Yeah. Uh, and then it ended up working out. And that was, you know, and people later on were like, oh, you know, commercial tie in. And I'm laughing because I'm like, yeah. we we literally plugged that sucker in ourselves, yeah. you know, yeah. all kinds of fun things like that. You know, when when um, we were doing No Road Home, the yes. sequel, you know, we we ended up doing this thing where the vision was dying and they're like, oh, they're going to kill the vision because. <laughs> Because he's dead in the MCU, so they've got to kill him in the main Marvel universe. And they're just getting super bitter at us and yeah. like angry and all this kind of thing. And I'm laughing because the reason why Vision was dying at all in the book was a throwaway thing that I put into Champions. So what happened was at the end of No Surrender, we have this epilogue issue. Yeah. And a bunch of people, things are happening. Vision had been smashed and uh, he was getting rebuilt. And there's a panel that Pepe Larraz drew. And I think Vision's got like a red glow in his eyes or something. And I was like, that looks in the script. We just said he's being rebuilt. But whatever angle and lighting, it looked ominous. It looked like wrong. And I went, huh. I wonder why. Like, (laughs) so in Champions, I I asked around, I said, Vision getting used for anything? They said, no. I was writing in Champions a scene where Viv is at home. It's the, her father's home for the first time since he's been rebuilt. And Tony Ho's there, and they're, like, testing his diagnostics and stuff. And it was just, like, a, a, a cute scene, daughter and father. Yeah. And in the outline that I'd sent to Tom, it just said, you know, Vision comes home, and, and Viv's getting him caught up on what has been happening. And seeing her perception of the events of the last few issues will get an insight into who she is as a character in their relationship. That was the scene. And I wrote it and it was like three pages of nothing. And I finished the scene and I said, this sucks. Like I hate it <laughs> yeah. because there's no emotional resonance. There's nothing. You didn't need that scene to be in the book. Right. And I'm just coasting and I'm sitting there and I'm sitting there and I'm sitting there and I go, there's nothing poignant. There's nothing interesting going on. I hate the scene. I like some of the dialogue. I like the visuals, but there's no purpose. I'm ready to tear it out. And then I just wrote an extra page. Viv goes off with the champions and uh, Vision and um, Tony Ho are staying there. And she goes, okay, I did what you said. I lied to her. How bad is it? And then he goes, I'm dying. And I just wrote this whole sequence where he says, the repair's not working, all this stuff. Yeah. I'm uh, there's nothing we can do. And she goes, you've been rebuilt before. We'll rebuild you. And he says, no, I need to, um, you know, I've now created life in order for her to mature. I need to die just like parents do with their, you know, the next generation. And I wrote that whole thing. And I just like, 
I really like this. Yeah. I is Vision going to die? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'll just send it in the script and see if it gets approved. Right. And Tom comes back and goes, this is a really cool scene. I'm like, thanks. And he goes, where are we going to follow this up? I'm like, I have no idea. And then when we were building No Road Home, we were like, okay, we got a piece with Vision. And then Al had this idea. I mean, I'm, we're doing spoilers all over the place now. Right. <laughs> you read No Road Home? Yeah. Yeah. So the the <laughs> it's so funny. Both No Surrender and No Road Home have these amazing story turns that um, kind of almost happened the same way. So the night before, we fly into New York uh, and we all went out for dinner, uh, Mark and Al and I. And we said originally we weren't going to talk shop. And of course, we talked shop. Um, Mark's feeling weird uh, and tired. He goes to bed. Al is jet lagged, but can't go to sleep. Hmm. So he's like, let's go grab another beer. I'm like, all right. So we go out for maybe multiple beers. Um, and then Al basically tells me how much he loves the Hulk and lays out what will be the immortal Hulk and this core concept, some stuff that still hasn't been revealed. Uh, it's unbelievable. I'm totally staggered by it. And yeah. he's like, Al's got the best voice in comics. Yes. You know, Jim, if we're in the, um, uh, in the room tomorrow and um, I can uh, pitch it, if, um, if you could give me some, you know, support in there. I'm like, I'm nobody. No one cares. I'm the low man on the totem pole. I'm, I'm the replacement Jerry Dugan. I shouldn't even be here. Like, what the hell? And he, no, no, no. You know, and the next day, lo and behold, there's a moment he gets to pitch it. The whole room is kind of knocked out and they do it. Hulk's in the book and all this stuff. And so we go out for dinner the night before we're going to do the story planning for what will eventually be called No Road Home. There's no title for it yet. We don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> and I had this thing that I had been rolling around in my head, big cosmic thing um, about the, the House of Ideas, that the House of Ideas yes. was above reality. And it informed a bunch of stuff that happened in the Marvel Universe. Um, and I, I just, I wanted to, to pitch it. And so we're out for drinks after dinner and I'm a little tipsy and I'm like, okay, guys. <laughs> and I just threw this, I said, maybe this isn't the place we do it, but I've got this idea about this thing. Is this a thing? Could this be a, th I'm talking to Mark Wade, Captain <laughs> Continuity. It Could this be a thing? And Mark's just, and I tell them this bonkers idea and um, Mark just stops and he goes, don't pitch that in the morning. It'll get shut down because it's too out there. But when we've got really good momentum, I'll tee it up and then you just go. And I'm thinking Mark Wade's going to tee me up in the room to pitch the existence, you know, yeah, this whole <laughs> new thing. This <laughs> metatextual concept of the Marvel Universe. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Lo and behold, we're in the middle of this crazy story meeting cb is there through most of the because he's now the editor-in-chief right and we're going and we're going going it's early afternoon and someone tom or cb says this is all cool what's it leading to and al goes well it's about it's a story about stories right you know greek legends and all this stuff and then mark goes jim knows exactly what this is leading to <laughs> and i was like 
okay, guys. <laughs> and I do this crazy pitch out of the the um, House of Ideas and all this stuff. And everyone stops. And I'm like, did that work? Are they down? And CB goes, you know, it's the 80th anniversary of, of Marvel. And I was like, oh, yeah. And everyone goes, done. And we were just like, holy crap. Yeah. Uh, it was such a cool feeling to know we were going to be doing that. And then uh, Al brings up the fact, he goes, well, you know, Vision is a reflection of the human torch who's the first character will take him back to flame and da, da, da. and i'm just like whoa it all works and it's like so this weird random page that i wrote in champions that vision is dying suddenly feels like a master stroke yeah. of planning a year in advance or whatever right. and i'm just like it's too good like you know you can't you can't bottle this stuff. It's it's no. too exciting. It's too fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, writing and story is all very organic, and it comes. And that's. Yeah. I think that's kind of the genius of uh, of of Tom's desire to put you guys in a room as opposed to making it like a Zoom right. meeting or an email chain. Right, right, right. Because like you know, you, you you type a thing, you leave it, you change it, you you, know, you walk away from it. You're in a you're or in a you room. misinterpret people's texts. Like right. when I read a sentence, even when we were working on the the story, you know, people would sometimes you're in the middle of stuff and you write a really quick little response. Yeah. But because it's so short and terse, someone's like, "Oh, they're pissed." <laughs> you know, it's like, no, like, I'm just doing it for my phone. Like, right, exactly. That's why it looked like I didn't give a damn. Uh, but we would jump on these Skype calls or, or on, uh, you know, phone uh, uh, conferences. Yeah. And we would all be laughing and kibitzing and in jokes and everything else. The feeling walking into that room a year, almost a year later to do No Road Home. Yeah. We'd proven ourselves. We had done the 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 book and everyone, you know, it had sold well. People were really happy. Um I just felt it was so cool to be back to do it again yeah. and now to be confident that, that I could hold my own. Like I was so, I felt like the low man on the totem pole in the first book and it, no one treated me that way, but I overextended myself. I was like hyper crazy about um, continuity between the artists. Uh, I had, so we did story planning, you know, scene by scene breakdowns, who was going to write each scene. You. Your original question, probably 25 minutes ago, was how did you keep it all so consistent? Yeah. We didn't have one writer do an issue. We would do scene by scene breakdowns, who was writing particular scenes. If a character, the main character of that scene was someone from your book, Avengers, US Avengers or Uncanny, it was almost always that writer. Right. But because we started to blend the teams together, which was kind of the whole point, yeah. it just kind of, we took possession of different characters who would run particular scenes in particular ways and we would also say it didn't have to be perfectly equal per issue right. if you had an issue that was strong on your character we'd make it up page count wise in another issue you'd write less later right and but someone had to architect each of those issues mark was doing a lot of other stuff i think he was getting ready to take over dr strange mm, that was, um that was al was track, doing yeah. Yeah, Al was doing a bunch of stuff. I had the least amount on my plate. And early on, on No Surrender, we had a, a schedule, a deadline. Tom had given us, I think we had three weeks to write the first issue and then two weeks for each subsequent issue. Wow. Um, but, you know, you're splitting it amongst three people. Yeah, okay. But with all the hassle of splitting it amongst three people exactly. and, and plugging it in. And so the first week after we left the summit, we just burned it everyone talking excitedly about what we were going to do. And at the end of that first week, I said to Tom, you need to tell us who's writing what. And he goes, 
well, do you know how the issue would lay out in your mind? You pace it. It was a 30 page first issue and send it to the group. I'm like, I'm going to give marching orders to Mark Wade. <laughs> okay. And so I broke down the issue the way I thought, here's that scene transition. Here's that bit of information. Here's what I thought worked. And I said, this is just a, a rough plan. Right. Let me know what you think. And I think they made like two little tweaks and they said, this would be better as a two page spread push this move that done and then it was like okay go right and we each wrote these scenes in isolation and then frankenstein monster the script together and then tinkered so uh i would fix someone's dialogue because i was writing rogue and uncanny avengers so i would add a sufficient amount of sugars to the text (laughs) and you know whatever else kind of stuff needed to be plugged in Mm -hmm. um and and everyone we were all kind of checking each other's dialogue and the way characters were using their powers but otherwise, it was like, that's your scene, you know, hey, maybe we should push that piece of dialogue or I think that's a more poignant piece of dialogue. Can we put it somewhere better? Yeah. But most of it was just that little bit of tweaking to 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 massage out the transitions. And it felt like all of us were involved yeah. and all of us were plugged into why scenes were happening and where they were fitting together. So over those 16 issues, I paced out 13 of them. And that was me like carrying water because I felt like I didn't belong. Yeah. Like I needed to prove that I should be there. You right, know what I mean? Right. Um, Cause I was like, no, really I'm a Marvel writer and <laughs> I'm a, I'm going to do I the thing. <laughs> I swear I'm, I'm worthy. Um, and it was really helpful because I think everyone else was busier and it became a thing where they were like, okay, Jim's gonna, you know, it's like, like Al paced out the, the Hulk issue, the big Hulk issue, yes. understandably. Naturally. Um, and I think Mark plotted out a couple of the issues in the middle there. And and we all jammed on the epilogue to make sure we had what we needed to finish it out. Right. Um, but that was a really cool, you know, opportunity for me and a way to prove that so when we when we came to do No Road Home, there was this funny thing of like, all right, Jim, tell us what to do. And I was like, oh God. <laughs> oh. All right. Here we here we go again, you know. And it yeah. was a it was a really fun thing to be able to do, you know. Yeah. With a with a with a cast of characters that you had that was so numerous and so varied, and more importantly, so like, I don't know, marginalized for the most part over the over time. A lot of obscure characters. Yeah. yeah. Was there anybody that you really wanted to use that you were like Ah, uh, we we don't have time, or there's no way they're. So gonna I originally, I I wouldn't. I've been asked this a lot, and I would never say who it was because I didn't want people to be like pining or whatever. Yeah. Um. So Black Knight was a character I I desperately wanted in the books, <laughs> particularly I wanted him in No Surrender and No Luck. Um. I was dead set on having him in what became No Road Home. Yeah. Because Conan was going to be in the book, I was like sword fight, sword fight. Yeah. And for a little bit, he was in the mix, and then they were like two sword guys is going to get, it's not going to work. And we need more varied, whatever. And so I lost black Knight, and I was like, Oh God, it's driving me crazy. Uh, but now in empire Avengers that I'm writing now, yeah. I basically told Tom, like, can I use Dane? And he's like, I've rejected you using <laughs> Dane and oh, you, you can have Dane. I feel bad that you haven't been because <laughs> he knew I was pining to put Dane into yeah. a book. So he's like, yeah, yeah. Bring black Knight." I was like, awesome. thanks. Thanks bud. <laughs> So, yeah, he was the big one that I was pretty dead set on uh, putting into uh, putting into the book. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you got to bring Conan into the into well Conan into the Marvel Universe kind of through no. Yeah. Uh, no Road Home. Uh, that was like the entry yeah. point. Uh, he has so proud yet. of that, too. Yeah. And, and nervous as hell. Oh, yeah. So that was 
the day that that um, the last part of No Surrender shipped, a round of congratulation emails went around from the team. Yep. And I think a day later, Tom said internally, there's talk of doing it again because there's another Avengers movie a year later. Yeah. Uh, I know it seems crazy. You guys are doing the victory lap, but are you interested? Because we'll put it on the schedule. And we said yes. And we almost immediately started sort of thinking about what could come next. Um, but but we didn't know what structure that took. C2E2 uh, came up. We were in Chicago. Um, Al's not there, but Mark and I are, and so are Tom. So we all go for dinner with Pepe Larraz, and we're all hanging out and we're chatting. And Tom drops this bombshell that Marvel's got the rights to Conan back, and no one knows yet. And he's like, I think this is the platform to bring Conan, you know, to a wider readership. And I was like, my first reaction was, no, you can't do it. That's a terrible idea. People are going to hate it. Um, Conan and superheroes, you know, like my, my, my. And then I thought to myself, wait a minute. That's the kind of fun thing I would have loved when I was younger. Yeah. I loved those two issues of Cullen Gath turning Manhattan into a fantasy world in the Uncanny X-Men. Mm -hmm. Those are like seminal issues of X-Men for me. Yeah. Anytime, you know, the, the, um, when the X-Men go to Asgard and they go on those fantasy adventures, Art Adams drew that issue. Yes, and uh, Asgardian Wars, yeah. I freaking love that thing to death. Yeah. Like, and I was like, what am I saying? No, we can make this work. Right. And if anything, if someone else does it, I'll nitpick it. So I better do it, you know, because yeah. then I'll, I'll do it right. Uh, right. Because um, well, you're a, because I, I don't know if people are aware, you're a huge Conan fan. Huge. Conan fan, sword and sorcery guy, grew up on that stuff. Dungeons and Dragons and Conan the Barbarian are the reasons I'm a writer now. Yeah. And so, obviously, I, I had co-written Conan Red Sonja with Gail Simone. Yep. That was what I thought would be my only crack at doing the character. Mm -hmm. uh, my first professional credit for Udon was recoloring uh, Conan issues for Dark Horse. Oh, wow. uh, which is, yeah. Um, but this was like obviously you know going to be this huge opportunity and so i was like we need a classic sword and sorcery story in the middle of our bigger story right the idea of the warrior and the witch so scarlet witch who's probably my favorite avenger i'm going to get to play with those elements of it and the funniest part was we i we finished up that conversation in chicago and i know that we're going to use conan as an ingredient but i don't know how yet but i've got some ideas i went to the summit like it was a legal case. I didn't talk about this the night before. I didn't bring up Conan because I wanted to kind of own it in the room. Yeah. I wanted to like put my case forward and go, I should be writing most of Conan because I'm, I love Conan. I know the character. I'm obsessed over the comics. Uh, I know this stuff inside out. Like I'll ask me a piece of stupid trivia. I'll fucking rock you. Yeah. Um, and then I, I'm build up and then we talk about Conan. Oh yeah, we're going to use Conan. And uh, Al Ewing just goes, oh, I mean, uh, you know, Conan's really cool, but, um, you know, clearly that's like Jim's thing. You know, he should just do it. And I looked and I was like, okay. And then Mark Wade goes, I'm ambivalent on Conan. Uh, you know, it's all yours, Jim. And I was like, what? What are you giving it to me? I fight me. Right, like, but I have, all this, I, want... <laughs> I have all these papers and folders. Yeah, Come just... on. Oh, look at this stuff. Look at it. You know, and so I had to laugh because they just totally rolled over and gave it to me. Yeah. And I was like, God damn it. You know? Yeah. A third of them didn't even care. 
Yeah, it was ah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Conan's cool. And so I ended up sending so much reference material for Conan and like going bonkers on it. I figured out where in the original Marvel continuity we were plucking him from the timeline <laughs> so that I could tell you what events had happened in case we wanted to reference them and all this stuff. Yeah. And that I sent that stuff over to like Jerry and everybody when they decided they were going to do Savage Avengers. I was like, yeah. this is what Conan knows and what he doesn't know. This is what he's done and hasn't done. Yeah. And it's bifurcated from the, the regular Hyborian timeline or whatever. Because right. I'm a nut. Um, you know, but that just, that's the stuff that made me really happy, you know, and we did some callbacks to a classic, um, issue of the Roy Thomas series and, and stuff like that, because yeah. I wanted that connective tissue. I wanted it to feel like it really mattered, you know? Yeah. And again, I thought that would be my only chance to write Conan again. Um, and then what happened was Mark Besso took over as editor of the Conan books. Jason was writing the monthly book. I thought when they announced Savage Sword with Jerry on it, that Jerry was just going to be writing Savage Sword. And yeah. then I found out, oh, no, it's a rotating creative team. Different teams are going to be writing stuff, at which point I was like, OK. Yep. Uh, uh, talked to Mark and I said, I've got a Conan story I've always wanted to do. This thing's been sitting in my head for at least 10 years. Um, it, it's putting Conan in a very iconic setting of this gambling hall. But he's got to play the game. Right. So it plays to all of his weaknesses. It's not about kicking ass and, you know, it, in, in some way, not all of his weaknesses. He is savvy and he is a, a you know, yeah, but he needs to be more, patient and he needs to be, yeah. yeah. And, and he's got to be strategic in a way yeah, that he's not normally and all this stuff. Um, and Mark really liked it. I formalized it into a pitch. We worked it into this three issue story arc we call Conan the Gambler. Yep. Um, uh, Pat Zerker drew it, did an amazing job. The Conan Properties people, who were already approving everything we were doing with No Road Home, saw it, and they really liked it. They thought it was badass. They were super pleased. They liked the card game idea so much that they hired a company to design that card game that they play in the story, That's awesome. which I was just like, this is so cool. Um, and I didn't know in the background they were negotiating with... Um, Conan Pro Marvel was negotiating with Conan Properties to get a bunch of the other characters, Solomon Kane and, and Dark Agnes and all this stuff. So because of Conan the Gambler, that became like my audition for more Robert E. Howard stuff. Yeah. So they said, do you know these characters? Are you interested? We, we want to bring those to a wider audience. We feel like an event would be the best way to do that. And I said, what Robert E. Howard characters are in play? And we went down this huge list of characters. And one of the characters on that list was a character named James Allison. Yeah. Who is ludicrously obscure. Right. <laughs> I think there's only like three full James Allison stories and a bunch of fragments. Um, but I love this one story called, uh, um, oh, crap, something of the worm, uh, Valley of the Worm. And it's got this really creepy kind of thing to it. And I said... What if we use James Allison as the connective tissue? Because he's this, he's one of the earliest literary meta characters. Mm. He, he is a, a writer who is dying in a bed in, in rural Texas in the, in the 30s. And, you know, Robert E. Howard was this depressed writer living in rural Texas who uh, had suicidal tendencies, like, you know, all this sort of stuff. Um, yeah. And, and James Allison thinks that he is. At first, he thinks he's dreaming, and then he realizes his dreams are past lives, that he's plugged into this 
parade of heroes from across the ages yeah. and he remembers their stuff viscerally and distinctly and i was like well there you go now you can connect you know france to the hyborian age to all these different eras in a way that makes sense and then the idea came up well what if we plug it into the, the modern marvel universe what character would be most appropriate and then we struck on moon knight mm-hmm. um and then i found out jason was going to be using moon knight for a big story in the avengers so how could i tee up some of that like it all just kind of organically grew out yeah definitely um and that came up the, with first... the serpent war right that was serpent war yeah yeah the first i think the first pitch for that was called kingdom of the worm or something and um, we had a bunch of these pieces, and I was this idea of making a new kind of elder evil in the Marvel universe, something yeah. on the level of of uh, Shumagorath or or Chathon or any of that stuff. Yeah. And I was, I get to make an elder evil of the Marvel <laughs> universe, man. <laughs> what the hell? Yeah. So uh, it was such a fun project to put together, such a crazy thing. And I handed in the first script of Serpent War. And um, again, I didn't know behind the scenes stuff was going on. Jason was going to be wrapping up his run on Conan, the monthly book. And they called me up and said, you're our first choice to take over. And I was so excited and terrified because that's like bucket list character, bucket list opportunity. Yeah. And, And I felt like when I did The Gambler, I'd said what I wanted to say about Conan and I could sort of drop the mic and go, that's a Conan story. Yeah. And now I got to do that every month. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, you know, time to uh, chitter, get off the pot. Like this is, this is the real deal. Yeah. You know, this is what you've always wanted. Don't, don't let go now, like right. grab, grab the wheel. And that's sort of been, you know, the experience that I'm on now is trying to make the most of this opportunity and tell really cool seminal sword and sorcery stories that feel like the best qualities of the things I grew up on, you know? Yeah. 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 Now my question, um, apropos of Conan and the Marvel universe is set Mm -hmm. a Conan God. So, you know, because Marvel was pulling from so many different pieces of literary stuff, you know, mythological stuff with, with Thor and all those sorts of things. I don't think set was specifically taken from Conan originally. I'm pretty sure it's just there happens to be shared material there. And in whether they've said it expressly or not, I made it pretty explicit that the set of the Hyborian Age is an interdimensional creature that exists everywhere in any when, you know. And one of the things we play in in Serpent War is this idea that time does not affect the worm or set in the same way, that they are seeing stuff simultaneously happening in multiple ages over multiple dimensions. Yeah. So, yes, it's the same set as far as I'm concerned and the way I treat it in the way I'm writing. Yeah. Um, You know, which which I think makes the character feel really cool and potent and, and interesting. Yeah. But it means that we get a clear tether to the Hyborian Age, even though the monthly Conan book does not cross over, you know, expressly. And that's been really important to me. Some people don't like what we did in No Road Home, um, and they don't like, you know, the Marvel stuff invading the Hyborian Age. And I'm a purist about Conan the Barbarian, the monthly book. I feel like it needs to stand on its own. 
if we do little callbacks or cute things, that's one thing. But if it's expressly saying like like Thor should never show up in Conan the Barbarian, right. Savage Avengers, all boot bets are off because that's the fun place you experiment. Yep. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's what it's built for. That battle for the Serpent Crown book that um, uh, um, Saladin's doing, like have fun with it, man. Like that, the character is bigger than. You know, in the same way that Batman can meet Judge Dredd and fight the Predator. Right. These characters are bigger than, you know, just the one story. And yeah. it doesn't bring them down to, to play. Right. right. But just because but Conan in, is a Marvel character, technically, doesn't mean right, that he's right. going to be in the Marvel Universe in his main book. Right. The main book is sort of like airlocked out. It's the Hyborian Age and it's cool sword and sorcery adventure. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's its place and purpose. Right. Um, so you're not going to see uh, a crossover. I would never do that kind of thing in the main monthly book. Right. You know, yeah. he's not going to be winking and nodding and grabbing a laser gun or something. Yeah. You know? Spider-Man's not going to show up in an arc. Like yeah. it's, <laughs> and yeah, you know, but again, I think it's totally cool when people do that stuff. I have nothing against it. Like I sent Jerry a message and I said, you know, Conan 2099 was so much so fun. Good. Right. And I actually said I'm jealous because I never would have done it because it's so audacious. Yeah. My fan, a Robert E. Howard fandom wouldn't have let me do it. Right. I would have I would have put too many checks and balances on myself to do it. Yeah. And he just went for the gusto. And I was like, damn it, man. Like, yeah. that's that's one of the things about getting those bucket list characters like. I have a lot of respect for writers who get those dream projects and really, you know, torque it, like do something wild. Dan Slott on Spider-Man, you know, I love that book. I love, he did the book for what, 10 years? 10 years, 300, something like that? Yeah, more more of those issues are great than are not. And even when something didn't work, they were audacious in a way that felt very appropriate to Spider-Man or pushing out into areas that people hadn't done before. And on a character that well-established the most published character at Marvel to still be risking and doing, I felt like was super cool. Definitely, um, That's one of those things where it's like, I think I love Spider-Man as much as he does, but I I respect the shit out of him because he's like, because he's not afraid. Nope. Nope. And, 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 that fearless quality is where you get those seminal storylines. You know, that's, that was the thing I was referring to where I'm like Parker industries, right? Like I was like, yeah, I, it's crazy. I almost wish he'd, he, I wasn't like into that, but right, I was right. like, but I'm like, do it all. Like, do it, do it, do, like, do it. It actually, it, it hurts that he has it and then loses it so quickly. Like you should have yeah, made, yeah. that should have been like over a year. Yeah, but, you know, the readership now, like the exact thing we were talking about with the online fandom, they get into it and they get so angry so quick, they ramp up so fast. Yes. Like, I totally understand the backlash that Secret Empire got. Oh, yeah. But on the other hand, you're sort of like, man. If you just you, held you know, it on. Like, if you just held it People were there. talking about Captain America for the first time in the comics in a long time. And that audacious quality, I know it's problematic and it's a huge mess. And, and, but particularly as someone who's behind the scenes and saw a lot of the work that Nick had been doing on that book yeah. to set it up and to tee it up and to pay it off. I was like, man, whew, like it's it, wild, wild stuff. You don't and I, get, you know, you don't get yeah. that, that hail Hydra moment in Endgame without yeah, secret. Empire. Exactly. I, you know, I, um, you know, when we relaunched champions, <laughs> I was terrified that we weren't, we were going to fall off the radar. Yeah. 
And so that's why I did the crazy Mephisto storyline, because I wanted people to get angry and be <laughs> like, well, you can't do that with the book. And it didn't end up grabbing hold the way I'd hoped, because I wanted that kind of audacious quality of screw you. We're going to go for the fences with this thing. Right. And and, it, you know, trying something the, the the issue where we did the school shooting, you know, I like that is something I was really passionate about. And I wanted I felt like Champions was the only book we could do that in. Yeah. You know, absolutely. And man, that was such a crazy thing to do. Like. The stuff in America was was in a really bad spot with with the with the gun crime. I mean, it always is, but. And I emailed Tom and I said, I want to pitch this story. And to his credit, Tom's so good about this stuff. It also helps that he's the longest running editor at Marvel and he's not going to get fired. Right. Um, you can go out there with him. And I basically said, actually, the very first conversation I ever had with Tom on the phone, he said one of the most profound things to me as an editor I'd ever heard before. And I'd have, I've had great relationships with editors sure. over the years, but he said this to me. He goes, um, you know, we're hiring you to do Thunderbolts and we're really excited to see what you bring to the table. You've got a good ear for dialogue and morally, you know, kind of bankrupt people trying their best and all this stuff. We're really excited to see what you do. And he goes, um, you know, pitch me your story ideas and I will not accept them all. But if you really believe in something, if you think it's a great idea, go back, retool it and and pitch it at me again, because I can be convinced of things. And I was like, okay, most editors tell you I'm the law or they're right. basically like, look, this is a big corporate machine. We have to do what's going to get approved. Try stuff out, but understand you can only go so far. Yeah. And I literally, the very first conversation is him saying, shoot for the fences. And he said, you know, uh, Ed Brubaker brought me this idea called the Winter Soldier and I absolutely hated it. I hated it and I angrily fought against it for a long time until Ed slowly but surely built his case and made the right story that was undeniably great. Yeah. At which point I started championing it up through editorial because I realized it it was worth doing. And he goes, if it's worth doing, then it's worth fighting for. Right. And so don't be afraid to fight with me, but your job as a communicator and a storyteller is to convince the reader and convince me this is the right way to go. And I was like, man, that's the best conversation. <laughs> yeah. I, I want people like that that I work with, you know. Yeah. And so the 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 school shooting issue was me basically saying, I know you have every reason not to do this. Exactly. But that's why I want to pitch it. And yeah. Tom said, this will probably not happen, but you should write it up. Yeah. And convince me because then I can fight for it. And that book went under the most insane amount of scrutiny of anything I've ever worked on, understandably. And we were told literally by um, everyone at Marvel, sales, distribution, everybody, they basically said, if a school shooting happens the week before or the week of release, the out. book will get pulled. You have to be prepared for that. You have to be prepared. This book, we could get it all done. Everyone gets paid. We solicited it. That is no guarantee it will be released. Right. And I was just like, okay, 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 we're going to do it. We're going to do it. And we 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 went through the flaming hoops and the number the the email threads I got from Disney people from Marvel people like I'm just like whoa man that was the week that they um uh my Twitter identity got whatever approved or um what do they call verified. it verified verified because they were like if if you know someone tries to hack your account we've got you know or something it it could go crazy we yeah. don't know. 
And I was just like, oh, man, here we go. You know, this is scary stuff, but cool and exciting. And the fact that we were able to do that yeah. and carry it through to completion, I give so much credit to everyone at Marvel because they had every reason not to do the, the issue. Totally. Um, at, at New York that year, we did the Marvel party and I finished up and we were all tired and happy, whatever. And I'm walking down the street and I realize I'm standing at the crosswalk with Dan Buckley, the president of Marvel. Yeah. And I look over and I go, hi, Dan, I don't think you know me. And he goes, yeah, I do. You're Jim Zub. And I was just like, oh. And I go, I, I want to thank you so much because I saw you on the email chains fighting for this issue that we put together. Um, and you had every reason corporately not to. And you you stuck with it. And we made something really special. And I'm super proud of it. And he goes, that's why we do it. That's why we're here. We make cool stories and we want to empower our creators. And he goes, keep doing stuff like that. And I'm happy to be in your corner. And I was just like, man, these are <laughs> amazing times, you know, yeah. like incredible. Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, uh, Jim, I think we've, we, we should probably wrap it up. I don't, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, rambling up. No, 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 no. This is, this is all gold and I'm very happy to be part <laughs> of it. Uh, it's more like, Hey, let's tease the next time. I mean, like, listen, yeah, totally. I would love to that have you back awesome. on. We got to keep it Thank going. You. There's so much we didn't even get a chance to, to talk about, but that's for next time. So ladies yeah, and gentlemen, please. please. Uh, but Jim, what's next and where can they find you? Sure. So I'm working on a bunch of different stuff. Um, I've got the the Dungeons and Dragons comic series I do for IDW. So the current miniseries is called Infernal Tides. Uh, really, really proud of it. It looks amazing. Max Dunbar is drawing the pages of his career. He's crushing it. He and I are also doing a book at Comixology called Stone Star, and the second season of that will be launching later this summer. Um, it's a space fantasy about a gladiatorial arena built into a space station that goes from planet to planet, bringing like entertainment and intrigue. Uh, we're really, really proud of the book. So those are kind of ones off the beaten path people may not know about. Yeah. Uh, at Marvel, I'm doing, you know, Black Panther and the Agents of Wakanda and Conan the Barbarian. Uh, and when I say that, I get a big smile on my face. Um, I'm also doing so during Empire. Uh, Agents of Wakanda is called Invasion of Wakanda. So it's a special thing that ties into the big Empire event. Cool. I'm doing the the uh, Empire Avengers tie-in uh, as part of that event as well. Um, trying to think of other stuff that I can talk about. Right. Uh, I think that's everything that's above the board right now. So awesome. it's lots of cool stuff I'm really proud of and so thankful I get to, to make these stories. Yeah. And I think this is the week when this episode comes out that new books will be available again. So awesome. we'll be back to back to basics, so to speak. Sweet, uh, sweet. We, we can actually read your books again. <laughs> Amazing. You know, um, I think it's a, a great time to catch up on all sorts of great series. That's so big, if yeah. you haven't been reading uh, Conan the Barbarian, um, we've got a real good jumping on point with issue 13. Um, but just in general, it's a wonderful time to sort of binge out and, and discover all sorts of cool new books. Yeah, the Conan lineup has been <laughs> incredible. Like the, the oh, amount thanks. of care and effort that has come, that has gone in to Conan from every creative member of that team and from Marvel is like unexpectedly awesome. The, the love that that the everyone has uh, from editorial through to each of the artists that we're working with, you can feel it. Yeah. Everyone loves the character. He's a seminal part of literature. It sounds corny to say, and yet the life of that character has been extended and expanded so much because of the comics. Yeah, there are 
infinitely more comic stories than there are written stories (laughs) for Conan. And so the character is the bedrock of what makes it, I think, so popular, him so popular in the public sphere is the movie, but also the comics. And so uh, being a part of that is is huge. Uh, One other thing I just realized, um, if you've never seen my Patreon before, on there I actually have the first volume of Skull Kickers and Wayward, in PDF for free, no DRM, nothing. Uh, I put it online very early in kind of the pandemic stuff as just like, a, hey, do you need some extra reading material? If you haven't read some of my creator-owned stuff, there's two free volumes you can dive in and enjoy. Go to my Patreon page. It's probably like three or four posts down from the top right now. Um, snag them. Share them with other people. Uh, read comics and share comics. That's yeah. kind of the thing. You can yeah. uh, find that in the link in the description below this video. It's the first one. It's patreon.com slash Jim's up. Sweet. Uh, so yeah, thanks a lot for having us. Uh, we'll see you guys next time. Thanks so much, Jim. And uh, thank you. Can't wait to have you again. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks a lot for watching. <laughs>